Yo, yo, what's up, everybody? Magnet Podcast, episode 145. It's my first one of 2024. Um, I don't know what else to say, everybody. I mean, it's just been... Well, we're only a couple weeks into the year, I guess. I don't even know what day it is anymore. Yeah, we're about the halfway point of January, but it's going to be an awesome year, everyone, and I'm going to start it off with an awesome interview with this young brother, a kid that i seen grow up uh, from such a young age uh, here on the Rancheria in Susanville. And this is like this is actually like the very first time I had a really good conversation with him. He's definitely going to be back. This is just I'm going to say this is part one of Stephen Young right now. So let's get into it because uh, we got a lot to cover. Uh, we didn't cover everything because I'm sure his story is uh, much much bigger. But um, for what we've done so far is amazing. Plus uh, the we we talk about his basket weaving. Um, once this episode is out, you guys are obviously listening to it right now. Going over to Instagram, look at the pictures. Also, going to put up a quick little video of him explaining one of them. So, all right. But with that, everyone, let's get into this with uh, brother, brother Steven, Steven Young. Here we go. Yo, what's up, everybody? Magnez here. I got a young, one of the younger guys that I remember from the res when I first uh, moved up here. He was born, I got here in 96, uh, Susanville Onion Rancheria. He was born a few years later, and I saw him grow up. <laughs> so, but uh, we have Stephen Young. Are you from Susanville, California, or are you going to claim somewhere else? Oh, no, I'm from Susanville. I mean, I was uh, born in Madera, but, um, you know, Susanville is home, the res is home, um, and I did live in Chester, you know, just about, what, 40 miles away for probably about eight years, but still, like, you know, all roads lead back to Susanville, so. Yeah, that's how it goes. My wife, as well as Chris here, uh, <laughs> we all, everybody always comes home. I grew up in the Bay Area my whole life, and that's where I met Chris, and and my wife, and Renee, and then she drug me up here. <laughs> so here we are. But growing up in Susanville, I've had other um, other guests on the show that's from here. And life is rough wherever we go. But you growing up here in Susanville, how was your life growing up? Yeah, it was rough. Um, you know, I come from, you know, I was, you know, when I was born, I was raised by my dad and by like another person for like the first five months of my life until I was reunited with my mom. Um, but you know, we come the way that we grew up, it was honestly, it was kind of rough up here, you know, and it wasn't just because we were poor. It's just cause we were mixed. We were light skinned. Um, we were kind of treated different because, um, we had white fathers, you know, I have, my oldest sister is my dad's um, kid from another marriage. And then my mom had two sets of kids with my dad and her first husband. And so we, we all have, you know, a white dads. And so we were kind of treated differently because we weren't seen as native enough. Um, but, and my grandma's experienced something similar because she had a Mexican father and she wasn't allowed to practice the culture for her own protection. You know, in California for a long time, they still had indentured servitude and things like that. And being native, you know, you always ran that risk 
And so her grandmother decided not to teach the children the language or the culture or anything. And they were raised, you know, more Mexican than anything. So everybody said that, oh, they're too Mexican, you know, to be native, which is ironic because, you know, they are um, still like indigenous to Mexico. They just don't know those roots and, you know, they don't have any ancestors from Spain, coincidentally. But um, when we grew up, you know, we were poor and we knew it, you know, and growing up up here, you know, you get along with people, you don't get along with people, you know, you can get along with someone one day and then not get along with them the next day. And But at the end of the day, I still found that there is a sense of community here because um, sometimes I had to go to other people's houses or go to my grandma's house just on the other street on Takoni just to find food, you know, because we didn't, you know, have a lot of food in my mom's house. And luckily people, you know, like yourself, you know, they saw me grow up and they saw me become into the person that I am today. But I would say within like the first 16 years of my life living in Susanville or living in Chester, it was rough. You know, I just don't really know anything else but um, trauma, like abuse, um, and just being treated as kind of an outsider just by everybody. That's everywhere. That's, that's a story I've heard a lot. Um, growing up, be it in, within my family as uh, well as friends, uh, other families, and it's it's a story that's not just here on this on this rancheria. It's like all over the country, and it can be as well as in other countries as well. But to see you grow up, how I saw you was maybe at community events or just playing outside and all that. <laughs> and then I remember when I we ran into you at one of the dinners at the casino. Uh, Renee had to tell me who you were because yeah. you were talking to her and I was like, who was this guy? And then she told me, remember? And then I went, oh my God, that's him. <laughs> so you see, that's how long it's been right. since I've seen, I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of the kids grow up to be good, uh, citizens within the, the community. And then you see the ones that are bad and yeah, my daughter, she went down the wrong track. So I mean, that was the, the, the life she chose to do. Right. It's sad, but everybody knows. And so always, it's nothing that I, that I hide. Yeah, there's always hope, too. I mean, because, you know, my parents were both on that road. Like, even though they come from two separate communities, they were kind of on that road. But they've redeemed themselves. I mean, they um, did their time. They did whatever that they had to do. And, you know, my dad is successful. I mean, he's a been a workaholic since he was a kid and my mom's no different you know she likes to work and stuff but um you know there's always hope you know for people um you know I firmly believe that just because I've seen you know people even on our reservation on other reservations um really find their way and um I'll say I you know it could also just depend on like who influenced you you know because you know it, sometimes you're influenced by the people who raised you or the people who you were raised around. And on the res, sometimes it's kind of like a, a narrow path, you know, to, um, or just a straight shot. You know, you're either do one thing or you do another thing. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I went to college and, you know, a, a lot of people on this res didn't go to college. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, you can go to college and, you know, not 
be a success story. You can not go to college and be a success story, vice versa. Like it's not always black and white, but um, other times it really is, you know, you, it's sometimes saddening to see, you know, that there's people with so much potential and, you know, depending on, you know, who they're raised around, depending on what influences they follow, they either go with that potential or they don't. Yeah, I mean, that's that's awesome. And I'm glad that you went off to school, like you said. And it, and yeah, I, I totally get it. You either go to school or you don't go to school. You be successful or you're not successful. That's awesome. But for me, seeing you grow up and to go off to, to school is awesome. I mean, that's just... Horns up to you, man. Thank you. Um, while you were growing up here and going to school, how uh, were you treated as a, a native or were you treated as, you said your, your dad is, is white. How, how were you treated? Because I had friends that grew up that looked, uh, that looked white, that had blonde hair. But they, they grew up in our community in the Bay Area as native, and that's all we saw. Yeah. We didn't see that they were white. I mean, I grew up, this is my buddy, he was half Navajo. Yeah, he had blonde hair, oh, wow. but that's how I saw him. I didn't look at him any other way. Right. So how, how, how was it when you were going to school here? Um, well, when I was a kid, you know, sometimes I was, um, I guess I was ethnically ambiguous. And sometimes I, I mean, today I have tattoos on my chin, you know, and I have long hair. You know, the first thing people see, you know, is that I'm native, you know, so... But if I didn't have the tattoos, if I didn't have the long hair, I'd be very, you know, ideally look white or ethically ambiguous. Um, and then you always have those people. It's like, oh, you have those native cheekbones, quote unquote, or whatever. <laughs> but um, when I was a kid, you know, I hung out with the other native kids, but I was still the weird kid, you know, among them. I mean, they would hang out with me, but I was always like, you know, either the butt of every joke or, you know, they would be nice one minute and then if they're around other people you know they acted differently towards me you know th things like that and you know at school you know you know played together whatever um but then like with the other kids that weren't native like they really didn't talk about it but at the same time we grew up knowing that we were native we knew that we were mighty you know that's you know who we that's our people that's who we come from we we just knew that but we didn't know um, I guess what it looked like in the grand scheme of things, you know, when we were growing up, we just knew we were native. Um, the school knew that we were native. Um, we got like all the title seven or title six, like whatever they, yeah. they change it all the time. So I'm not, you know, sure what number <laughs> that title has on it now, but, um, and then when I lived with my dad, you know, my dad's white. Um, he's also Christian, you know, nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, used to practice that. I don't anymore. You know, I have my reservations against that, but, you know, to each their own. But yes. um, I will say, like, I experienced, um, I, you know, that was the first time I kind of experienced racism. You know, I, when I was a kid, like, you know, people could care less. I mean, I, I, I'm lighter skinned. I can understand that being light skin or being white passing, you know, what they call it, like, you know, you, you're kind of, you don't experience as much racism as like the darker skin kids do, because I saw that, you know, and, you know, there's jokes, you know, that we have between each other that aren't okay when it's with, you know, between two people, the same ethnicity, 
and then two people of a different ethnicity, like it's a different thing, you know, the jokes or, you know, whatever. But um, then when I lived with my dad, like my hair was always cut, you know, I was cut short. Like I always wanted long hair because I saw like other native kids like with long hair, you know, I just thought that that was normal, you know, that's just what I wanted. You know, I wanted to look the look. I think part of me always wanted to be like a real, what I thought was a real native. About how, how old were you when this was going through your head? Well, uh, I will say like, I was kind of like more aware that I was native, like maybe around like eight or nine. And, okay. Um, you know, and I was just like, like I would just felt like that, you know, that's something to be proud of. But, you know, we also knew that we were, you know, Mexican, you know, and my grandma grew up knowing more about the Mexican stuff more than, you know, the native stuff. And that's no fault of her own, you know, but um, then when I was about 10, it started becoming more clear that, you know, I, people were, or one or two people in particular were demonizing that side, you know, the native side, you know, I was living with my dad and his wife was, you know, very openly like, um, prejudice, like, I remember, like, a lot of things that she said about my family and I, like, being Native and, you know, just, like, making jokes and, you know, she said stuff about people of other ethnicities, too, that are just not, you know, acceptable. And to me, like, you know, when I was younger, like, I didn't realize that it was always wrong, but um, then I got older and um, other people around me started you know, educating me on like, you know, certain things that you should or shouldn't say or do or shouldn't do because I wasn't getting that like in the house, you know, while living with, um, while living with her. So, um, then I came back to live here at, you know, about 16 and it was a really rough situation, you know, living with, like, I will honestly say it was harder living in that house than it was living on the res. But I will say like, there's, you know, if I continued to live on the res, like in the situation that, you know, I was living in other than living, my grandma's the same, you know, my grandma <laughs> raised all of us. But if I had lived in a different situation other than with my grandma on the res, I don't think I would have become the person I am today. You know, I don't know if I would know what success looks like, you know, just because of the company that, you know, we kept, you know, on the res while I was living with my mom. But my grandma always stressed to us, like, be our own success story, you know, walk our own path. Um, When I was living with my dad and, you know, I love my dad to pieces, like my parents, like they really screwed up and they weren't the parents that we needed, but they didn't entirely know what being a parent really looked like. And we see a lot of that, you know, on the res today. They didn't, just didn't know how to be a, they didn't know what a parent looked like. I mean, my mom had my grandma and my grandma was doing it all by herself and she was able to do it. But my dad didn't really have like a strong parental figures. And, you know, he has good relationships with his parents. I mean, his father passed this last year, but it's kind of back and forth. And so we didn't know, we didn't have good parental figures growing up. Um, so it was just kind of, a long-term identity crisis, I guess, for me, you know, because, you know, here's one person telling me that being Native is fine, like, that's who you are, you know, you should be proud of that, but then this other side saying, like, 
they're just Satan worshippers, like, you know, they <laughs> just worship demons, like, and all this other stuff. And so I dealt with that crisis for a long time until I finally left that situation and came back to the res. And then everybody else, even the Christian natives that are up here, are proud to be native. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it took a, a while for me to leave all of the Christianity and stuff behind. And that's just my, by my own choice. And I was starting to fully embrace like being a native person and there's been highs and lows and, but I'm a lot more confident in my identity now than I was probably when I was 16 or 17. That's cool. I mean, that's, that's an amazing story. I mean, I'm sure you got plenty more to, to tell. I mean, you're still, you're still writing your story. You're still young. You're still out doing, you're doing what you're doing within the world. But to go off to school, to leave the res and go off to uh, a college, I'm like, did you apply to like all kinds of colleges and just took whatever said first, or did you get many offers and then had to decide where you wanted to go? No, I well, I started at Lassen College here in town. So um, plus, I I didn't have my license till I was 19, and I graduated high school when I was 17, and the college is just right down the street from yeah. the res. So we just. <laughs> I just walked, you know, to college or my grandma dropped me off, whatever. But um, I think, you know, during that time, I mean, I didn't have a lot in my formative years, like to influence me into like a, just to walk on like a good road or, you know, I didn't know what being successful looked like, you know. Um, So coming into like who I was and at that time still being, and I still kind of, have some of this to this day I feel like I'm kind of mentally behind you know um other kids got a lot of like teaching and training in their formative years that I didn't get and so there's a lot of stuff that I'm still kind of learning you know I have it I just wasn't really mature you know when I really should have been so it led to a lot of impulsive decisions and things like that. But uh, last in college, I um, did about two years and I took a break for a little bit, decided I want to know what it's like to make money and, you know, be more independent. So I came to work, you know, here at the tribal office. I was there for about a year. And um, that's when I, after I got my license and, you know, I had a car, like it felt so good to be independent, you know, having my own car, having a job, like it felt really good but um and then I went to go work for the child support office and that was when I started to question like you know what do I want to do in life because I just was I had it was getting my degree in history my A in history but it just was so unfocused as much as I love history it just like like what do I do with it you know and you know if you could do any I've met historians that are making bank but it was a really rough road to get there. And so I was like, I was reading this book for a class at the college. It was uh, biological anthropology. And I was reading a book on like the top forensic anthropologist, like in the country at the time who revolutionized the field. And I remember just reading that book and it just opened my eyes, you know, you know to a whole new field and it piqued my interest. So I was at work at the child support office, had nothing else to do. So I was on the computer and I was just like degrees in forensic anthropology and Colorado State was the first search result. And at the time, it was kind of scary to think about like moving away from everything, you know, you know, my 
my, all my family's here. My immediate family's here in California or here in town, like on both sides of my family, actually. And everything you knew, know as a native, like this is your home. Like as much as Susanville isn't always an ideal town to live in, this is still your home. You belong to this, the land. And so, but something just kept pushing me to go for it because I always remembered the teaching, like the elders teachings, like, and they always just, this to us is like, go off and go to college, come back and work for your people. And so I wanted to do something like that. And Colorado State was the only college I applied to for that program and I got accepted. And they, so I finished up at Lassen, I finished my degree at Lassen while going to, I, it was a full time schedule at Lassen College. And then I was working full time at the Mini Mart. So I had a lot of work experience before I went to college. <laughs> and that was really rough and that was during COVID. So it was all on Zoom and it was really, really tough, you know, passing those classes. But my professors were, you know, nothing but kind and patient, you know, knowing I worked full time and everything. I barely passed at Lassen and then I went off to Colorado State and I um, had the best grades I've ever had, you know, in my life. And I graduated with the 3.6. So well, dude, awesome. <laughs> that's see that that's what I love to hear. I mean, just yeah, you were doing you were doing good here. I'm not saying you weren't doing good. You yeah. were you were living life and, and taking care of family and everything. But to go say that all my grades were weren't the greatest here, but then to go off somewhere else, I wouldn't say there was less distractions because you were new to the area there. But to go there and just soar. With your education, dude, that's that's awesome right there. I mean, yeah. uh, how much more schooling are you going to go? Well, um, I'll say that when I before I went off to college, I was really taking the culture very seriously. And I um, started learning language and stuff when I was 18. And, you know, I'm still not fluent, but that's, <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into that. It's not just, you know, my learning. It's just not enough people to practice with. But... Um, I became the first person in my family since my grandma's grandma to speak our language to any degree. And that language is? Mountain Maidu, the Mountain Maidu dialect. Um, And then I started learning the basketry and taking that really seriously. So um, I went off to college and I was still trying to maintain my cultural obligations there while going to school. But it's also because I love doing the culture. I really loved all the schooling too. So like I had to balance it, but everyone just kept pushing me like, you know, just focus on your school. Culture will always be there, you know? And, um, but I do plan on taking kind of a break like in 2024, you know, because I did two years like in college and, um, while trying to maintain, you know, good finances and a roof over my head, food and all this other stuff. I did all of that. And, you know, excuse me, whatever weaving and stuff that I could. But I was like, I decided, you know what, I just want to focus a little bit more on the culture and like, you know, weaving and, you know, teaching classes if I can, you know, on all this. And I'll go back for a master's, hopefully at either Chico State or UNR um, in maybe 2025. So probably fall of ne- fall semester of next year, I think I'll hopefully go back if I get accepted. <laughs> Well, that's good. Now that you're telling me that, every time I see you, I'm going to ex- expect you to 
to go forward, to keep moving on. Say, look, hey, man, you told me you were going to go back in 2025, so you better be doing what you're doing. I'll be that one of the many father figures to a lot of these kids here on the res. But, I mean, like you said, uh, some, some people go away to, to go off to college that are from here and then come back. I mean, Chris here, my, my brother-in-law, Chris is right here. He went off to school to Berkeley. Then he went off to Colorado to, to law school, to Boulder. Yeah. Uh, Renee, same thing. She went off to Berkeley, and then they're all back, and they're both working for the tribe yeah. and everything. So that's, that's cool. I, li- I like that story. And didn't really think about it that much until you said it. And then like, well, my family are doing that. Or they did that, yeah. as well as my mother-in-law, um, Pat. She did the same thing, and she came back and did stuff within the community. Um, but she it's always, cool. She was it, very encouraging to me, uh, Pat was. And you know, before she passed, she would always say, oh, you're going to make a great chairman one day. And I'm like, I don't think I ever want to be chairman. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, I mean I'd rather have someone that knows what's going on and uh, knows the culture and, and everything. So that's really good. Um, like you said, you were like you said you were learning the language. Who who was teaching you the language? I actually um, my one of my the elder that actually named me, and she actually was very crucial to my desire to learn the culture. She was the former Tipo here. Her name was Mel- Melanie Johnson. She's uh, Maidu and Pit River, and um, she. Uh, she kind of had a similar story to me where she had someone that knew a lot or, you know, she, well, for her, she had someone that actually knew the culture or knew people, but she grew up away from it. You know, we grew up kind of not knowing and she like started learning this stuff like later in life. And she, I started showing interest and, you know, all of this stuff. And so she kind of mentored me like in the right direction, you know, so she was telling me about, you know, all of these great people that we have and, um, unfortunately, the youngest fluent speaker that we had, Farrell Yatom Cunningham, he passed in his 30s. And um, and I remember meeting him once when I was a kid and, you know, he just seemed, you know, looking back on that memory I have, it's just like he really loved, you know, the culture. And unfortunately, like he, you know, was taken from us, you know, way too soon. And um, since then... Um, a lot of the fluent speakers that he was around are gone as well. So I remember she gave me a printed, like she photocopied the William Shipley's Maidu Texan Dictionary. And this was written in like the 50s or 60s. So it's got that 1950s, 60s, like linguistic confusion all over the place. (laughs) Using like a bunch of terms that, you know, I can't um, understand. Like he was trying to describe like the letters and stuff and um I, was, I can't get this but i started reading it and you know looking at um the mayu compared to the english and all that stuff and i kind of started reading it but then i saw a video actually of feral yatam and he was on like this radio show on youtube and he was describing all of the glottalized consonants the um imploded consonants the letter that we have and i think you know, Paiute actually has that, that language uh, or that um, vowel as well that English doesn't have. And from then on, I was actually able to open that dic- that Texan dictionary back up and I actually, out loud, I was reading sentence by sentence, you know, what I could, what I could. And so I was following along and going along and then 
one of his students was a, um, she's not native, but she's a, has a degree, has degrees in a few language languages. And this was her first native language she worked on. They worked together until he passed to revise William Shipley. I mean, William Shipley did a good job of documenting the language, but um, we needed it to be, a, they needed it to be a little bit simpler, you know, for modern readers to read and understand. So they revised it and um, figured out um, how to do it in a way where people who are learning today, they can read it and understand. So they did that. And I picked up one of Karen's books at Margie's Book Nook of all places. Okay. And uh, it was the beginning grammar book. And from then on, I started teaching myself, kind of. And then I was able to get in contact, you know, with other people like, you know, Donna Clark up here. She was really helpful and got me some other books and information that I didn't have. And then I actually met Karen in person. And that was when we played the Maidu Monopoly game. And at that time, I could read, I can read Maidu just fine. It's just, you know, actually putting a sentence together sometimes, um, like a complex sentence is kind of difficult just doing it on the fly. Like I either have to really think about it or I have to go back to the lessons and, you know, learn. And now Karen has 30 uh, videos on a private YouTube channel for Maidu language speakers from beginning to intermediate Maidu. And now it's up to us to take it to the advanced level because the advanced level is probably what you do in the home with the language. And so I got my beginning learning, you know, by myself, you know, just like, you know, I did a lot of other stuff by myself. And, um, but Karen took it to the next level. And um, I don't think our language would survive today if it wasn't for the work of William Shipley, Farrell Cunningham, Karen, you know, people like Paul, Kaysan, like, you know, all these people that are taking the language forward in different ways for us to learn. And so I'm really grateful for that. Well, that's good, man. And I'm really proud of you that you're doing that. You took the initiative to learn it because they said there's not a lot of people that know how to speak the language. Right. So what's the knowledge that you know now of the language? How often do you use it with uh, other family members or, or friends or whoever? Well, Luckily, my younger cousin, um, he's interested and he's been going to the classes up here. I don't know if they're still doing the classes, um, but uh, so sometimes like I'll, he'll have questions for me or he wants to know about, you know, certain things and, um, and I'll kind of like, sometimes I'll, if I'm with him like long enough, then I will sometimes talk in Maidu first and then translate uh, the language like after, or the sentence I say after but like I said I can't always think of stuff on the fly you know and I'll go back and I, I kick myself for not remembering but it's the practice you know that's necessary for keeping the language like in your mind you have to be using it you know a lot and uh, you know my family like they've kind of showed interest but you know my oldest sister my mom's oldest is a mother you know so she's busy as it is um my brother is in school my other sister's working um so it's like it's not i think you know they fill their lives like with they try to be as busy as possible where um you know and i try to take time just because i'm really passionate about it to actually learn all this stuff 
And, you know, that's not like a diss on them, you know, for, you know, not having the time because, you know, they're busy. And, you know, that's the one thing that is kind of an, like an enemy to culture is just the busyness of the world, you know, because we can't, you know, because everybody's so busy, not people don't have enough time to practice the language and things like that. And, um, so I do my best, you know, whatever, like if they have questions, like, how do you say this? How do you say that? Then I'll give it to them. But, um, I think like if, hopefully like as a family, you know, at least for the younger ones, like my generation, if we could all come together and say like, you know, let's do something, you know, I would thoroughly, you know, enjoy that. But like I said, but we're also kind of all spread out. So it's not like, um, not all, none of my siblings, including myself, um, live here. That's the thing. And so like, it's kind of hard to do like over the phone or whatever, cause, <laughs> but, but yeah. That's good though. I'm glad that you're doing it. And I'm glad that you found other people to, to, to learn with. I mean, we all need to learn our language. I mean, I know the, the little bit that I know of mine, uh, I can understand it more than I can speak it. That's me. Yeah. I kind of like, I can listen to the recordings now. I can understand what they're saying and I can translate it like kind of loosely, but, um, getting down to the very specific things. Like I, I can't do that just yet, but that's why I'm grateful for Karen's videos because she'll go through these old recordings and she can, has been able to literally translate, you know, give literal translations for everything rather than just the figurative, um, translations. Yes. Well, no, Renee told me to ask you all this. I mean, not about that, but, the the basket weaving, yeah. um, the picture you had showed me and then you brought it, brought it right here. What are, what am I looking at right now? So this is a, um, uh, your Navajo people kind of share this same tradition, even though sometimes you uh, Navajos take it to the next level. They put five rods sometimes in their baskets, but for us, it's usually th these three rod coiled baskets. Um, there we also do twining, twine baskets, but um, coiled baskets, the mighty coiled baskets are very desirable, like on the market. And these baskets are the watertight baskets. So when you soak them enough, the material will swell up and that's actually traditionally how they would cook their acorn or buckeyes, um, you know, berry soups or whatever. Like that's how, this is how they cooked. This is how they gathered food, processed food, all of it. But this is a three rod coiled basket with the foundation being willow that's gathered in the spring. Uh, the big leaf maple is the white. Um, that's kind of the chief material that was used in Maidu basketry, but you could also use the peeled redbud and sometimes the split willow. And then this is the California redbud, which is the red pattern here. And um, this is a basket I made for myself just because I don't have some of my, any of my own work like in my possession, you know, they've either been sold or gifted. I give a basket, one basket to a person in my family each year, starting from the oldest to the youngest. I've done three. My uncle just got a, uh, a seed beater, um, basket that just looks like a big ladle kind of, but that's for gathering seeds because you hit the plant stalks with it and they fall into like your basket. That's how you, they've gathered seeds. But, um, this is actually a kind of a special basket because, um, my, some of my relatives, I started the 
start and I got the sun pattern, I'm actually really surprised that I got it as <laughs> uniform as it is because that's hard to do. But my it all looks hard to do to <laughs> me. <laughs> you do it enough and it just comes. But um, my some of my relatives had faced loss um, recently, uh, some of my extended family. And um, then uh, a lot of my friends kind of were going through going through it, you know, towards the end of this year. And so a lot of prayer was kind of woven into this basket. Like I just was just praying for them while I was weaving. Um, and so, and then what came to mind was our creation story because a crucial character in the creation story, um, depending on the translation, some people say it was the Robin, other people say it was the metal lark. Um, but I remembered while I was in Colorado for college, um, during my, probably my hardest semester there, I was just going through a lot mentally. I was just praying. I was like, what do I do? And, um, the Robin, there was a Robin wing just right in front of me as I was walking. And, um, so I picked it up and it kind of pushed me and gave me the strength to go forward because if it wasn't for, in our story, if it wasn't for the Robin, we wouldn't have the, the earth, you know, cause we believe it's filled with water and with his nest, I believe, I think it was, he provided the soil necessary for the earth to be created. And so, um, I based this pattern off of that wing that I found and, um, it's kind of my own design. You know, this isn't really a traditional, um, design that you see in a lot of baskets. I, this is my own interpretation, but, um, this basket's kind of, uh, special to me and I got hyper-focused on it and now I got to get back to all my orders cause I got <laughs> some orders to finish, but, um, this basket's very special. So I think I'll just use this for when I'm making offerings for prayers or going to gather, you know, our stuff for the baskets or whatever. But, you know, this is a very special basket. From start to finish, about how long did that take? If you were to just sit down and focus on just doing that, how long would that take you to make? Uh, if, well, I started this back in November and I finished it at like one o'clock in the morning last night. <laughs> but, um, you know, if, if it was just this basket, I had nothing else to do. Like you just told me sit down and just do this, you know, um, I would say maybe, maybe a month, you know, or around that time to do something this size because some baskets take a day, some take a year, some take a month, some take a lifetime, you know, but, um, I would say this could take like maybe a month if this was the only thing that I had to do and nothing else, you know, and I've, um, an elder up here actually has one of my baskets that, um, I sold to him and it's the size of a shot glass. And that could have taken me maybe a week if all, if I, but that's just like, I gotta take each and every strand that I gather of all the material and I gotta shave it down to the right thickness, the right width, the right size. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of material that actually goes into this. It might not look like it, but um, if you were to unravel it, like it could probably, if you start from here, go all the way around, all that material could go to the front door, you know, so. Where do you gather all your material to make your baskets? Uh, there's different sites. Like I, um, Highway 32 um, has a lot of the good maple um, there. Um, 
over at Potato Patch Campground. But, um, and then the red bud, you gather in the foothills. And I actually have a, a friend who sometimes supplies me with red bud. That so this is the red bud, the, the darker stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's another pattern design that I haven't really quite mastered yet. It's kind of hard. For me, it's a little bit harder to gather, especially since I'm not here in the fall or early winter when it's ready before the ground freezes. But the bracken fern root, um, you dig up and then you have to dye it black. And so I have yet to successfully <laughs> gather and process and dye that material, but um, I kind of can't wait. I can't wait for that day to come. It's actually, you know, really nice black material. What made you want to start weaving? I guess just, uh, I visited a, a museum and I saw that there were mighty baskets in there and I was just like, I was just in awe, you know, cause I had no idea, even like not really knowing what goes into it or how they did it. I was just in awe that, you know, our people are among the finest weavers in the world. Like I could see that, you know, and mm -hmm. I was just like, these are just amazing. Like. I don't know, but I also didn't know anyone who did it. You know, that's the thing. And there are more people on the rise nowadays that are doing, you know, the basketry, but I think we have maybe three master weavers and they're all teaching, which is good. That's what Renee wanted me to ask you. What, what do you categorize yourself as? Master, uh, I, a Padawan, or whatever, <laughs> for you Star Wars nuts out there? <laughs> well, I would never call myself a master weaver, even if I was. Um, I mean, I was told that a master weaver never says they're a master weaver, you know, because, um, like, you know, you definitely want to, you know, keep the humility, you know, with it because, um, you can, you know, basketry is all about, one of the things is learning from your mistakes, you know, and so I would never make the mistake of, um, saying that I'm a master weaver, especially since there's still some baskets I haven't made yet you know and i think if you want to be a master weaver you have to know just about everything there is to know and um i'm still learning so mm -hmm. i um i would say i'm very i can be very proficient in what i do obviously like this is the best basket i've done so far if you look at some of my earlier work you know you know it doesn't look it looks great but you know this is just you know i look at this i'm just like wow that's phenomenal but um you know, that's just one thing my teacher always stressed to me is like, you know, you can be a teacher, you know, you can be a weaver, but she, she doesn't call herself a master weaver. So I don't call myself a master weaver, like, and she knows uh, the techniques and the materials and stuff. And, um, and she still has that humility. And I think a lot of weavers, I've, I've never met a weaver that calls himself that. I think that's something that the community, you know, calls them because, because, uh, you know, especially I think once you're a master weaver, you're you're someone of kind of an older age. You know, it's kind of like being an elder, I guess. So. All right. Well, I hope I'm still alive when you fit, when you finally consider yourself a master <laughs> weaver. But um, I don't know how it is in, in the Maidu tribe, but I know some tribes traditionally uh, women are the weavers. Yeah. How is it for you guys? Well, I think. If I put my anthropology hat on, I have a friend that hates it when I say, say that, but <laughs> um, 
But I think like an anthropologist, the one thing that is certain is that culture and tradition changes. And the one thing that it is like, with, and, but it also adapts. Tradition adapts, just like humans adapt, just like animals adapt, you know. Um, it's all about like evolving. And quite frankly, um, yeah, the women did traditionally like do the weaving, but the men did make certain baskets too. Like the men in our tribe, they made like the work baskets, like the sifters, seed beaters. They made the baby carrier baskets, like some people call them cradle boards. But if you say cradle board to someone who is a California Indian, they'd be like, it's not a board, it's a basket. <laughs> Get it right. Yeah, I, I learned that lesson much when I was much, much younger. Because <laughs> for us uh, Navajos, it was cradle boards. Right. Yeah. So when I did see that, I knew it was a basket because I, I, I can clearly see that it was woven together but then i was like well is it a cradle board that was the only only word that i knew right and there was like no it's it's uh it's like a basket and everything so i was like oh okay man they basically bit my head off when i said that but i mean now that i know much much older but i mean i'd I love uh seeing that and my wife has all kinds of stuff and she yeah. said if you ever teach class she would love to sit there and learn it from you because she yeah. she was always telling me a lot uh, on how proud she was of you, oh. and like you said, like like my mother in law Pat, and how she was always telling you to just keep going forward yeah. and soar higher than you are now. Um, that's how my wife is. She's like she was like you need to talk to this guy. Yeah. I, so I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah, Renee was always kind of. Um, I would say myself and Renee, like I was told, were the ones that picked up on it like really quick. And Renee is actually really good. You know, I know she can she can do this. I, and I hope she does, you know, but, um, yeah. And I would back to like the, you know, who wove the baskets was, um, yeah. Like the women, like I said, the women traditionally like were the weavers, but nowadays we're at a time where a man weaver is better than no weaver at all. That's what, um, Justin Farmer, he was a Southern California weaver. That's what he would say. And he was a very good weaver. And he, I think he, he passed in his 90s and he was weaving, you know, up until, I think up until the day he passed. But, um, and I was told that among our people that they're the old timers, like the guys that lived last century, they started weaving too because they would often um, have to stay with their grandparents while their parents were off to work. And their grandmas were all weavers and so they would show them how to do this kind of stuff. And so um, they would do it. And from what I've been told, there were some male weavers of the past generation, the or a couple of generations before me. But um, I would say post-contact, there's been a rise of more male weavers. Um, and I've kind of faced not a lot of scrutiny, but enough scrutiny to where, like, you know, I've been told, like, oh, the women do this, women do that, you know. And it's like... It, but the thing is, is like weaving is one of those things, just like language and the rest of the culture that has helped, you know, heal me, you know, through like everything that I've been through in life. And no one can take that away from me. And um, I think uh, like there are a lot of male weavers that, you know, do uh, have probably faced that. But I think... You know, just <clears throat> I think there were a lot more men doing it than maybe we maybe we know of, but that's just my own <laughs> that's my own opinion on it. But um, 
like, I would say like, if people are interested, it shouldn't matter what their gender is because it's, it doesn't belong to just one group of people. Like, you know, tradition belongs to everybody in the tribe and we shouldn't rob people of that. So that's, that's my message like to anybody out there that wants to weave is like, you know, the baskets belong to you too. Your very first one, do you have that or did you gift it to someone? My grandma has it. She was, um, and I'll say like, actually my best friend has the very first one I ever started. And um, he's in New Jersey. And then my grandma has the second one I ever completed. Um, I started two, but then um, I wanted to remember how to do it. So I started just practicing like how to start and, you know, just so that I didn't forget and get focused on finishing something so I just started you know some starts and then I made a the first basket I gave away for Christmas was in 2021 I think I came home and I gave it to my grandma and um very proud of that piece you know I'm I'm glad it went to her you know and uh she's very proud of it too like you know she doesn't let really anybody touch it (laughs) so And she likes, you know, showing off, like, my work. Like, sometimes they'll have presentations, like, here at the tribe or whatever. And so she'll bring it. But, um, and my mom has a medallion I made for her, too, um, with uh, some abalone and stuff on it. And she's very proud of that as well. So, um, and uh, I know my uncle is proud of the one that he just got. Um, But I would say, I think my, like, in total, like, just like a different technique, like not just this coil technique, but I've probably, you know, other than the 10 or 12 baskets that aren't finished yet, <laughs> um, you know, my body work is growing. Um, I would say like, it's probably in the, in the teens, like however many baskets I've actually completed start to finish. How long have you been doing this now? Started, uh, started braiding bear grass, I think in 2017 or so. And um, then, you always start somewhere and braiding bear grass is one of those easy things that gives you the feel for it. And then I started doing the red bud in 2019. And that was when my teacher, um, actually Renee was there as well. She saw that I could do it and I was picking it up. And then, uh, I started doing the advanced techniques of like the coiling and the, uh, fine twining. I started, I learned how to start it in, 2021 before I went off to college, you know, so I had something to take with me, you know, a piece of the culture, a piece of my people to take with me. And so I've probably in total, like, you know, if we, since 2017, that was, um, what, six years ago. So I've been weaving various different things for about six years, but I've been an advanced weaver for maybe, um, like almost four years or three years now. So um, I still have yet to make, you know, certain baskets and baskets of a certain size, but, um, you know, I would say like, you know, I'm just proud of, you know, where I'm at now, you know, I, I don't feel a lot of pressure to make all these huge baskets and like show like my progress. I just really want to just do it, you know, no matter what it is. Um, excuse me. Um, I've, with our with our culture, with the Navajos, when they're doing their weaving, sometimes uh, they have stories on what they're, the designs that they're making. They, from what I'm told, 
there's a there's a story for every design. I mean, do you guys have uh, stories when you're when you're when you're weaving your baskets? Yeah, I mean, like I told you this story, you know, the story mm-hmm. of this design here, and um, another part of the story is the way it's shaped. You know, it's kind of. I guess some people might look at it and say, oh, it's inside out because this is the backside and that's usually supposed to be on the inside of a basket. But I had a different vi- vision for this basket and we've considered baskets to be living things. You know, for me, I describe a basket as a living thing that was made by another living thing using other living things. And so, you know, the basket is alive, the weaver is alive, and the plants are alive. And they all have their own personalities. And, you know, that's why it's a lifelong learning that all the plants have their own personalities. And so does the weaver, so do the baskets. But um, when it comes to designs, um, from what I understand, I was always encouraged to come up with my own designs. And, uh, you know, there were traditional designs on the old baskets. And, you know, you could sometimes see they were uh, where the weaver did their own interpretation of a design and they would add something to it that just it looked like it was theirs and they would sometimes have family patterns but when it comes to designs it's like in our in our ways of weaving it's honestly completely up to the weaver themselves you know and their their own interpretation so when i actually posted this on a basketry group someone thought it was like a he said a three snake design and um you know i appreciated the you know attempt you know for him to understand but i, I told him like well this is actually my own pattern it's my own interpretation and um you know i've done like some of the old patterns on baskets you know that i've seen um you know you kind of tend to avoid um copying patterns like stitch mm-hmm. for stitch um especially from another weaver. But I think the old people's baskets, you know, we have some freedom with that because sometimes we don't know who wove it. And um, each of those patterns would probably have their own interpretation. So sometimes we see a pattern that's really old. We can't always accurately like describe the pattern, you know, because the weaver's not there to tell us what it means. But we can kind of have an idea and, you know, maybe we can replicate it maybe in our own way, like replicate it to a degree where it's not exactly like theirs, but it's similar and we can come up with our own interpretation um, of what we're doing based off of that pattern. But usually you just go by your own. Like the only weaver I knew in my family, and this is extended family even, was Roxy Pocanum, who's um, a famous name, like among our people, especially here. And she had a basket that had these uh, diamonds on it that were connected. And Roland Dixon had described a pattern similar to this as uh, flint arrowheads. And, um, you know, whether it is or not, I'm not sure. You know, I I don't know. She can't tell me now what the basket, uh, what the design on the basket really is. And I remember telling one of our master weavers, like, I'd like to do a that pattern and she's like just do your own interpretation of it you know do your own you know it's important that you make your mark as a weaver and so I kind of have my own way like my signature because I always start with a strand of pine root 
in my cold basket. So you can see it's kind of a darker color. Okay, yeah, I see that. Yeah, and for me that, with the basket being a living thing, that for me that represents like the umbilical cord. And so, um, and the umbilical cord's just like one big root. And so I just uh, add a piece of root in there as my own representation. Well, this is amazing. Um, I'll put pictures on Instagram so you guys can see what we're talking about. But it's, I, I, I don't, I don't know what to say. This is just an amazing. Anytime I see someone that does this type of stuff, it's different when you see things in museum. Oh, that looks cool. That's a cool yeah. design. But when you sit there and talk to someone that does this and knows how to do, I wouldn't know how to even begin with this. Even if you just handed me all the materials, said here, make it. I was like, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah. Um, Let's see, I forgot what I was going to ask you. I, I never write any questions down. I just Honestly, always, I always just talk off the top of my head. Oh, uh, about college. When when you got when you got to Colorado, mm -hmm. I mean, just someone from a small little town to go to that to that uh, university. How how did you feel? Were you scared, or was you like, no, I got this, or or were you treated? I mean, when you met other uh, natives from other other tribes there. It's not just from Colorado. There's probably plenty of other people. How were you? Were you accepted? Were you cool with everyone there? Yeah, and I'll I'll say like um, the one person I have to thank of uh, my cousin Sonia. Um, she uh, lives just right over here. Um, she and I were on our way to Reno for our regular sushi run that we would do over in Reno. You need to go with us then. We love sushi. <laughs> <laughs> the sushi is the best, but um, it was on our way. We were on our way to Reno for sushi and I got an email and uh, it was my acceptance letter to Colorado State. And so we were just screaming in the car like when we found out <laughs> and we're just like, oh, we're going to get sushi at a good time then. And she actually, her and um, her daughter, my cousin Elizabeth, they drove across five states, you know, to, you know, send me off to college, you know. Um, and so um, I remember when I got here, like I, I had met someone and I online and I finished out their lease on this apartment for them before I moved into um, university apartments. Like they're not dorms, but, you know, they're pretty close like their apartments are not ideal. yeah so <laughs> but um at least it just wasn't a communal shower which is what I'm really happy for so <laughs> but um I will say I got there and the first thing I did I was just like I wonder where all the natives are at you know because you know Colorado has a lot of native history I mean um and where where they're at in Fort Collins it's the home of the Cheyenne and I think Arapaho and Ute. So there's three tribes that are traditionally like in the area. And the university had the Native American Cultural Center. And so I went to go check it out and I started, I did a summer semester, so obviously no one was on campus, but I met the staff and they were super nice. And then I came back when the fall semester happened and it was kind of really foreign and there were just all these faces and, you know, you know, it's one thing, I mean, like, you know, when you're around new people, but when you're around new natives that you <laughs> don't know, you kind of get a little bit nervous, you know, and, uh, but they were all like really nice. And, um, the assistant director at the time, she kind of pushed me to interact with people and they were all super nice. And, you know, we're 
all, all friends, you know, uh, it's kind of a close knit group that comes out of the center there. Um, drama here and there, but that just happens. And so, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> but um, they were actually like really nice and they, that was probably like one of the highlights, you know, because you could have like a bad day, but you go into the cultural center where everybody is and, you know, it'll just make you feel better. Like, I think the one thing that natives living off res understand is um, we're all kind of feeling out of place because we're not home on the res, like we're not home with our family. And a lot of the natives there are out of state because Colorado State has the Native American Legacy Award, look into it, um, <laughs> that actually reduces your tuition to in-state tuition if you're out of state and a federally recognized Native student. And so um, that's another reason why I went to Colorado State was like the lowered tuition. But um, we all just kind of felt out of place, I think, at one point or another. So we just all tried to make sure that we were taking care of each other. And so... Um, of course, like there's, you know, clicks here and there, but we all kind of, um, treat each other like a big family and I'm still, I still go in there even though I've graduated, you know, I currently work on campus still and I hang out with them and, you know, it's just a fun time and we're all, um, you know, some of us, you know, when we graduated, like we don't keep in contact anymore, but you know, like it's just cause you know, you move away and you're focused on other things, but, um, it's actually like a really, that was really crucial to, you know, just me enjoying my college experience it was um, hanging out with all the kids at the NAC. It was just, you know, we're always asking, hey, going to the NAC, you know, let, let's go, like, let's go hang out. So, um, yeah, that was really um, probably the highlight of my college experience. I've asked this question before to other, um, Depending who's been on the show, I've interviewed all kinds of, mainly a lot of friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. To, for you, for, for growing up here on the res and to meeting uh, urban natives, that's what they called us, because yeah. I grew up in Oakland my whole life. I was basically a city Indian. Yeah. Did, when, when you met other, let's say, okay, when you met city Indians, what did you think? Was it, were they the same or were they a little bit different? Because in, in my experience, there's some, uh, when I go back to Arizona to the res, or even when I moved up here, I noticed that, I mean, they're, they're totally two different reses, but yeah. you, I've noticed that people, especially with, with Navajos, for me, what I've always noticed there is they're more on the shy side. Very shy. Yeah. <laughs> so, I will say Navajos are some of the shyest natives I've ever met. And, um, but my roommate, uh, Darren, great guy, he's a Marine veteran, um, one or two years older than I am. I thought he was an urban native through and through, but um, as it turns out, like when he was a lot younger, he grew up in a Hogan. And um, I don't really think, I mean, he knows like some Navajo words and phrases and stuff. I don't know if he really speaks it, but if you talk to his mom and his uncle, they have Navajo accents. Like you're, it's no mistaking, you know, they, yeah. they speak Navajo. But I think, um, but like he ended up, I think living in a, like on the outskirts of Denver. So I thought he was an urban native like through and through, but um, because he kind of has the look, I mean, like he dresses really well, like um, you'll never see him like going out in, you know, sweatpants and like a, you know, in like a hoodie, like 
like all the rest of us do. Like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, he's uh, actually like, um, I thought, you know, maybe he was an urban native and, you know, uh, urban natives kind of sometimes act a little bougie and I'm not saying... Hey, I'm hey, wait a minute. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> See, and I thought he did, but he's actually like really like, he, there's like a really, there's a humbleness that I didn't recognize off the bat. And so, um, and we had a conversation about that and I said, look, like, you know, I didn't realize, you know, because I grew up like in small towns. I grew up here. I grew up in Chester. I grew up like on the rest. Like mm -hmm. my formative years, all I knew was the rest. And so, um, but like, I think there's a, I think there's a difference. I mean, what we call urban natives, are they really like urban natives or maybe did their family want a better life than they had, you know, on the reservation? Because it's harder sometimes on other reservations than it is on this one, you know? And this is, you know, like, this is, people are more comfortable probably coming here than going to like, you know, bigger reservations where there's maybe more crime, like more, you know, maybe alcoholism and all this other stuff. And, you know, I mean, I've, like, I can only imagine, like, you know, but the older generation, you know, like a generation before us, like, might have had to face, like, on the res. And so I think um, when it came to, like, urban natives, I think I've met mostly people that grew up on the res or grew up near it or knowing that lifestyle. Um, but when it came to urban natives, um, a lot of them were still pretty humble, like, you know, down to earth, like people. And I think they might've had other people in the family that influenced them, you know, to say, remind them like, you know, you're, you're native, you know, um, this is what we come from, but, uh, don't maybe like, maybe don't have like a, a better than a holier than thou attitude just because like people grew up on the res. But also, res natives, on the flip side, can't treat urban natives like they're not native at all just because they don't know anything about culture or language and things like that. And in all honesty, I've, sometimes I've had to check myself, you know, because they're still native and they might have the opportunity to learn all of this stuff. But, um, I mean, as natives, native people, collectively, we've faced like a similar struggle or the same struggle with colonization, like assimilation, extermination, you know, all of this stuff. So I, I think just our history could bring us together. You know, we shouldn't be separating ourselves just because of where someone grew up. See, where were you when I was growing up? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I get it. Because for me, uh, everyone knows my story. This is the show, but... Growing up in the city, I, I had those opportunities to go to the res in Arizona just about every summer, uh, sometimes into in the winter. So I knew uh, I knew that lifestyle. I knew what was going there. My, my grandparents didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. They lived off the land. They lived off their farm, the animal, farm animals, and they lived off the crops during when, when they could grow corn and stuff like that. We had to go get water. Like I said, there was no running water. My... My grandmother now, she's 90, somewhere up in the high 90s. <laughs> she, she has electricity and, and running water now, but back then when we had to go get it. I mean, so I, for, I think for me, what, at the time when I was younger doing that, 
I was like, oh, why do we got to do this? Why can't we just turn the faucet on? Because I was so used to how I was in the city at my at our house. But then growing up, I realized like I understood that's how they lived and they didn't complain about it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that that was amazing. So I was able to know that side when I speak to other Navajos and they look at me. Oh, you're just from the city. You don't know how it is. I said, well, I kind of do. Yeah. And when I and, and tell them my story and on what we would do for our grandparents and they're like, wow, you did all that and, and everything. So they're like, OK, you, they'll, then they'll look at me a little more different. Yeah. And I think that goes, I mean, something like I went to college and a lot of people that, you know, maybe don't go to college, like they'll, you know, have that, oh, Mr. Big Shot, you know, somebody went to college kind of attitude. Um, and I think it's just because, like, maybe they know somebody that let their success and what they did, they get to their head and they forget where they come from. And I will never forget where I came from. I'll never forget, like, you know, I'm from the res. I've experienced poverty. I've experienced just all of this stuff. And um, I have to remind myself, like, I was just like, you know, everybody else, you know, before, you know, we all have the same story. We just went like on different paths. And um, I think that, you know, it kind of be, if you forget where you're from, you kind of forget your humanity. And I think that's what some people might be worried about. You know, I, and that just goes to show you can't, you know, never judge a book by its cover, you know, because, I mean, like I said, with my roommate, I thought he was a city native through and through, but then I met his mom and his uncle and I could hear their accent. And then he told me like, he, when he was younger, he was a kid, he grew up in a Hogan. And, you know, before they could, you know, actually move into a house where there was like electricity and, you know, they could have access to a store, you know, they could have transportation, like all this other, other thing other stuff. And so I um, think that, you know, we should, like, even if there are city natives, like if they are like urban natives, maybe they've never been to the reservation. There could be a reason for that, you know, um, maybe it's, you know, hard, maybe it's dangerous sometimes to go to certain parts of a reservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe their family wants, you know, something a little bit better for them. And, you know, I say like there's a good side and a bad side to being either a urban native or a res native, you know, there's, um, dangers, there's, uh, things you got to be careful of. Um, and, but I think at the end of the day, like, I mean, we should just be humble enough to recognize that we can see a piece of ourselves in everybody that we meet. Well, that's awesome. And that, those are strong words, powerful words. Thank you so much for, for saying them. See, that's why I like interviewing other much younger natives. I'm like 52 right now. And I've only been doing this for like maybe seven years to one, since I got into the podcast game. But all the people that I've met doing this, of course, I interview like friends and family and stuff yeah. like that. But when I bring in, but you are family. I've known you since you were a little kid. Yeah. So... But um, there's, there's, I'm sure there's so much more we can, we can tackle. So it's, yeah. it's, 
Um, you're always welcome to come back to oh, the to you. the to the show, and we can continue. Um, but before before we get out of here, um, is there anything that you want to say to younger natives that are going to hear this, or as well? I'm sure I have I do have a younger and an older audience. What would you What would you like to say to them to 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 empower them. Like you said, you, 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 you know, you knew the struggle on how you grew up and everything. So to, what would you say to some younger people that were kind of going through your situation when you were growing up? Yeah. Um, gosh, what can't I say honestly, because, um, there's a lot of encouragement I wish I had, you know, when I was a lot younger and gosh, I would say, my biggest message to to anybody you know because you know there are people that are a lot younger coming into their culture or my age or even older you know they're all trying to find their place and i remember listening to another podcast um you know and i can't remember what it was called off the top of my head but um the guy his biggest message was your ancestors know who you are Mm -hmm. and you know, your culture belongs, the culture belongs to everybody. The language belongs to everybody. Um, but go off and, you know, make your own success story, but just never forget, you know, where you come from and who you come from. I mean, we come from boarding school survivors. You know, we come from people who were forced off their homes. We come from people that, roughed it on the land for thousands of years and they loved their lifestyle. They just loved doing, you know, all the things that they had to do to survive, they did it. And there's a lot of strength that can be drawn from that. I firmly believe that um, our ancestors' strength, you know, lives within us and it can help us heal that generational trauma, you know, you know, my second great great grandmother didn't teach all of this stuff um, to my grandma and her family, probably for their own protection. Um, but she will also like, you know, what was forced upon us was to just hate that lifestyle, just to hate the fact that we're Indian and stuff. So there's there's a lot of reasons why that could have happened, but we are. And part of that generation now, and I'm very proud to be part of a generation that's reclaiming our identity, reclaiming our culture, and not allowing it to disappear. You know, I'm uh, very, like I said, I'm very proud of that, and every native should be. And I really hope that they understand um, that they are the living embodiment of tradition. They are the living answer to their ancestors' prayers. And don't ever lose sight of that, no matter what you go through, no matter what anybody says to you, because you are your own person, but you are your ancestors' grandchild. And you belong. Wow. Oh, oh, man, that was that was some powerful stuff. But Stephen, thank you so much, man. And like I said, seeing you grow up here in the community 
and and I'm happy and I'm proud as well as as Renee. She's proud of you, so don't ever think that nobody isn't proud of you. I if you, like you said, your grandmother and your family are, but other people outside for us. I mean, this is a, like the longest conversation that we've ever had together. And I'm sure we'll, we're going to have more, everyone. He's going to come back. Yeah. He's got more to his story I'll be here. Um, <laughs> and everything. So I always just love to uh, talk to the, to the younger generation. I say, when I say younger, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm an old rundown skateboarder. <laughs> so, um, but it, it's cool to, 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 to speak to uh, the younger generation and the the younger generation that grew up on the res, mm-hmm. as well as as the ones that grew up in the city, like myself. Yeah. So, but I mean, I got nothing but respect for you. I just wish nothing but the best for you and your journey, because your journey is not even close to ending. And as far as your basket weaving, it's amazing. Like I said, I'll put pictures on Instagram of it. And I would love to see more of your work and, and everything. So as far as everything to be in the communities, within within the Native communities and the non-Native communities, because there's obviously non-Natives that listen to this show. Um, but again, welcome, or welcome. Uh, in my language, <laughs> thank you for being a part of this show. And uh, man, you're just awesome. So, Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. With that, everyone, we are out of here. So come back for more whenever that is. But always remember to be safe out there. It's a big world. It's a big, crazy world out there. We're all here for, the, uh, for one another. We got to live here in the Creators and Mother Earth. So with that, everyone, just be safe. And always remember to rock hard and skate fast. <laughs>